So our topic for today is what customer centricity. We said we we talk well, a little bit yeah, about well, yeah, different, and, yes, different uh, customer <coughs> customer centricity. So what the hell is it? <laughs> oh, well, let me just ask that again. So everything customer centricity. What is it? I hear everybody talking about it, saying that they want to achieve it. But what is it? Yeah, it's a good one, that isn't it? it it's um, how true, how true that you hear everyone talking about it. It is. I, I find it extraordinary. You know, the, the, uh, every business book, uh, all, all, all sorts, all over the place on business conversations. Uh, online and offline, you hear this thing that you've got to be customer-centric. Uh, and uh, very often it's accompanied by the, the, uh, the, the sort of suggestion that if you are not customer-centric, uh, dear me, you're in trouble. You know, your, your business will suffer. It could even fail. So um, it, it, the trouble is, I think, as, you, as your question hinted, um, what is it, you know, that nobody actually takes the trouble particularly to define it properly? Uh, there are, we've done some research uh, and uh, desk research to, to look into this, and you come up with umpteen different versions of what customer centricity is, and, and that's obviously a real problem. Um, you know, perhaps the, the most persuasive in a way, the, the, the best definition that's put forward, which is by uh, people like Gallup, even the, right. the research uh, company, you know, putting the customer as the sole purpose and core of everything a business does to grow. Okay, you know, that sounds pretty impressive, putting the customer as the sole purpose and core. Um, and there are quite a lot of organizations and consultancies particularly who, who push on that line of, of it means putting the customer first. It means putting um, the customer is, is the, the basis of every decision that the business will make. Uh, uh, and, you know, always, always having the customer first. There's, there's only one problem with this. Well, well more than one problem, I suppose, but the big problem is that hardly ever do the, the proponents of that line talk about um, the, the interactional dynamic that's right. going, that they envisage going on. You know, are we talking customer to supplier, which has been the traditional one, uh, or, or perhaps, perhaps that's changed, perhaps it's now supplier to customer. Um, so, uh, so I've got that completely back to front. All right, okay. I'll, I'll just do that bit again. Yeah. Um, you know, the traditional approach has been supplier to customer. You know, the, everything originated from the supplier and reaching out, so to speak, to the customer and talking to the customer. Um, is that still the case, or has it? Reversed, even you know, are we saying now the customer is so powerful in in such a situation that the, 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 it has to be customer to supplier, or is it even customer and supplier together? You know what's going on. That dynamic makes all the difference to how to how you interpret the thing. Uh, 
and and that's the problem that is rarely if ever talked about properly right i also see that there's going to be a, a major challenge for a legacy business one that, that is existing already um because you you're really talking or, or painting that then there's a a, a reorganization of of the of the company and its processes if 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 it's if we are to to walk the talk and and, and actually be customer centric absolutely absolutely uh, i mean essentially we can say with the one thing we know with absolute certainty is what's happened in the past of course uh, it's difficult to predict the future uh, the in the past you know the whole of the world as we know it if you like uh, what is usually called uh, you know the product era or the industrial era was all about companies making stuff or sourcing stuff uh, and selling it at customers so the, the interactional dynamic was from the company making things and measuring its success in terms of the volume of the things that it sold. So that was very much the way things were. And when we think of traditional uh, capitalism, if you like, that's what tends still to come to mind. Uh, people think of it in those terms. But you know, if you think about it, there's been a, the, the arrival of digital, uh, and particularly the build-up of digital and getting us to the point where we now are with digital, which is really only on the, the doorstep of, a, of the real digital age, if you like, uh, that can't be sustained, that old model, just as it is, because we've now put everybody in touch with one another. We now have interconnectivity, genuinely. Yeah. And so we have to rethink. Now, I think the challenge and the problem for a lot of companies is uh, trying to decide how they should manage that rethink, if you like, because you, you can, um, okay, so we think you've got to change one way or another because the environment in the world in which we live is different from the right. past. Therefore, uh, and, and you have to pay credence and you have to acknowledge the interconnectivity that exists. Uh, the question is, is, how does that inform what you make and do and how you present that to the world and how you present that to customers and indeed how customers access that? So there's quite a lot of work to go into it. But really, I mean, in summary, and I'll put it at, put, to put it at the extreme, uh, the, the old model of a company, of a business corporation, of an enterprise, was based on the fact that, that the power sources, the power map of the company figured around production and finance. So that was it, where everything went. You know, and, and the company operated as a fortress uh, and within its walls, it made things or provided things. And that's obviously dead in the water now. You can't, you can't be isolated. And most of the functions of a company, probably almost all of the functions of a company are now outsourced or outsourceable. You know, all, all companies long since um, 
well, 20, 30 years in some cases, outsource their production to other cheaper locales. Uh, and everything, you know, once upon a time, it would have been absolutely unthinkable to have corporate information outside the company, but now it's, it's in the cloud. We've moved business into the cloud, really, uh, and de deconstructed it. So uh, this is a very different presentation of, of what a company is, even if it is still operating as largely as a producer of product, let us say, which is the... Um, yeah, and is, there, is there any tension there with the company's uh, stated existence to deliver shareholder value? <laughs> yeah, there is. Uh, here again, I think, I, uh, you know, my, my trend as, uh, you know, you, you well know and, and people will quickly understand is I, my, my tendency is to try to look back, to look forward. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the idea, the shareholder value thing uh, and what went on, the, I think that, uh, there is a, a crucially important point that people miss because well, it's not they miss it, it, it it's just not thought about and it is simply this that the business corporation as we know it was a function of a different political system uh, it, and it was a function of a different uh, governance system and right. polity uh, so it was in fact a function of the nation state so uh, through the 18th, 19th, and into the 20th centuries, uh, the, the true emergence of the nation state happened. Uh, that is, you know, the, the, the constitutional integrity of a particular by country, almost mm -hmm. effectively, uh, and that a country would take responsibility for its governance, and all that. what we miss is that that actually, for a significant period of time, through into well into the twentieth century, actually provided a, a virtuous circle of good things happening. It we made stuff, and this particularly relates in a way to um, it relates to the United States and North America. It relates to Europe. But it particularly relates to the United Kingdom, where we are, because that, this is where it all started, in a sense, with the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and what we had was a situation where we made things and sourced things, products and services. Uh, and that all happened within our territorial boundary. Uh, that meant that it provided employment, for example, to people. Mm -hmm. uh, and so people had jobs for which they received money. They paid tax on that money. They went out and spent that money, which supported the, economy, uh, yeah. the, the economy. And it paid for welfare. And the, according to um, American academic and lawyer, Philip Bobbitt, the, he, he says that the, the justifying principle, if you like, of the nation state model was that it supported the welfare 
of its, of the nation supported the welfare of its people. Now in that environment, you, you see that the stakeholder model, the original shareholder model rather, mm-hmm. uh, of business really worked and was absolutely appropriate. So uh, usually now, you know, people, there's a lot of criticism and a lot of hoo-ha about uh, Milton Friedman, the economist, American economist Milton Friedman, who around, I think it was 1970, said that the purpose of a business was to maximize its profit. And I think I would argue that, uh, and people now, of course, look at that and say, you know, how, how... Bizarre, you know, that's evil capitalism. That is just extortion. Uh, In fact, I would disagree with that. It wasn't. It was absolutely right within the context of the time. Because uh, the state, the nation state, provided the bit that's missing is a framework of regulation around everything that happened. So the idea, and actually Milton Friedman did say this, that, you know, the pursuit of profit is wholly good within the con- but within a context. And the context was that the state provided regulation to make sure that uh, naughtiness, if you like, and extortion and uh, profiteering did not happen. Right. So that was, that, that was fine because, you know, and basically most people adhered with that. Of course, not all of them. They never do. You know, there are some bad hats who will always misbehave. But uh, so that was that was fine and dandy as far as it went. The question is, why doesn't that work today? And it doesn't work today. Uh, And the reason is because not only have we atomized business corporations into the cloud, we've atomized nations into the cloud. Everything has gone up into this international universal system of interconnectivity. So there is no longer a reliable local framework, if you like, physical local framework, geographical framework of holding with that can contain rules that can be applied. It can't happen. That's why at the moment, you know, there is so much uh, angst, quite understandably, about very often about the behavior of the the initial digital native companies. The tech tech giants. The tech giants, exactly. The Googles, the Amazons, uh, and all the rest of it, because they operate in really in a a rules-free space where they can move things around willy-nilly. They have absolute control of, of what they do. And... You always get this at the beginning of a new era. Uh, the last time round, which the industri- when the industrial era came in, the the robber barons, so to speak, were the the railway, uh, and the mining tycoons of the yeah. American West. You know, the boy, uh, and and people worried then, and they said exactly the same things. It's just that it was more controllable because it was more definable and it was more constrained. This time around, there are no constraints. So Every, it's all off. So are you advocating then for, for a, new, a new customer constitution? Or I, 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 I... Well, this is where I, I have to admit, I get 
I, I blow hot and cold over various things. Because what he, if you think about it, what it's sort of arguing, if the nation state is no longer what it was, uh, it's not exactly gone, but it's, it's very much weaker and, and a less uh, secure structure than what, what it was. And if everything has gone up into a fully, you know, globally distributed knowledge system mm-hmm. of the cloud, then one argument uh, w- would say that uh, the only way out of this is what gets called these days, I think, sort of the great reset, the new world order. A reset, yeah. Yeah, you know, and we're off. And I, a personal, a personal opinion, I hate that idea. Uh, I, but I, I'm not quite sure how things are going to fall uh, in the interim. What we're seeing happen is that as the nation states lose their boundaries, literally and metaphorically, uh, they have less sway over everything. Uh, one of the things that has gained in power is the, cor- the corporate enterprise. Mm-hmm. So the, the business enterprise, that's why I think we hear so much more uh, about corporate enterprises in terms of all the issues around governance, about purpose. And politics, yeah. And, and politics, yeah. and getting involved in politics in a way they never would before. Uh, but it's maybe inevitable because of the, the globalization of everything. And if, and if we say it's the connect- connectivity and the influence of, or perceived influence of, of, of the customer, one of the challenges clearly is, is, is that businesses ha- are trying to address this problem by developing this in-house capability called the CX department to understanding mm. customer. Yeah. Got on, they've got, to, they've, got, they've got to do something with customers. And it has, I mean, this is a very new phenomenon. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think there was uh, that many CX practitioners 10 years ago. No, absolutely right. Absolutely right. I'm sure there weren't. Uh, I, I, I think, you know, my own view is that CX customer experience came really it it seems to have emerged around about the millennium and then i don't know around 2010 particularly it sort of took off big time and people were talking more and more about it Uh, and the the origins i i personally believe are, are are from user experience yeah uh, and i think you you can date them back actually to one specific event that launched it enormously. And that was uh, back in the 1970s, uh, Xerox's Palo Alto uh, operations. Uh, In the 1970s, Xerox Corporation set up a team of scientists trying to pull together, well, trying, it did from around the world, it pulled together a fantastic team of people who worked on the early stages of uh, ubiquitous computing. Mm-hmm. What were you going to do? Uh, the, you know, the, 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 um, the computer uh, as a ubiquitous device was made possible by the creation in 1971, the launch in 1971 of a, a particular chip an Intel chip, the Intel 4004. Uh, and this, this 
offered the promise of this ubiquitous computing. Um, and uh, it, away it went. So we're, we're in that period, the mid 70s, where Xerox was doing that. Uh, and of course, in 1975, Microsoft was formed, Gates and, and, and partners started. Uh, and a year later, in 76, uh, Jobs and Wozniak uh, on Apple. Yeah. So the, everything coalesces around that point. And you have some fantastic stories from that time of uh, people uh, working in Palo Alto at the Palo Alto Research Center, actually making the future. They invented the, the mouse. They invented uh, the, the on-screen menu with drop, drop down menus, all of that stuff. And this, this was, they had to, because nobody had ever used this stuff before. Yeah. What, how, the, how do you work this machine? What do you do? Uh, so this was user experience in, in all, its, all its glory. And out of that came the idea that user experience can either be good or bad, easy or hard. And all the, the the people who worked on the computers, the men and women working on the computers, um, the, the, the new personal computers, particularly the small scale computers, really did some phenomenal work in that, that department. That began the thing, so suddenly there became a design function in experience. You could design experience. And that morphed then in the early 20, 21st century into customer experience. Uh, and the idea then, because all these touch points that we now yeah. glibly take for granted just didn't exist before, because the only touch point in the past, past, past was you go to a shop or you go to a car dealership or something. Yeah. But, but, you know, you didn't have this, uh, oh, I'll look this up here and go there and go there. So, that, so it all links back to that. So customer experience took off eventually. The more that we became, uh, you know, once we got, mobile phones or supercomputers in our pockets. Um, boy, did you need, you know, CX became the obvious thing. The, the, the trouble with this, I think, or arguably one of, one of the troubles with this, is that CX found itself, understandably from the outset, making life easy for the customer. Let's make things seamless, frictionless, easy to use, you know, so... Uh, that, that obviously was the right thing to do when you're presenting somebody with this bit of kit called a, a personal computer and how you're going to use it. Question, does it apply when you're trying to sell everything? As, as we, because that yeah. has, it has become the watchword or the watchwords of customer experience. It's ease. Everything is easy. So effectively what we have done is get customers to lean back and expect things to be placed in front of them and offered up with infinite ease to lure them, if you like, dance them across a patchwork of, of touch points to, a, to an inevitable sale at the end of it all. And that's, that's, that's where it goes. The only thing is one question. Do we, as humans, always like things to be easy? Do we value things that are always so easy? 
you don't have to think for too long to realize that very often we value things where we have to put a bit of effort in. We value things that may be a little bit harder. Uh, sometimes we value things that are actually quite a lot harder. So we've hit a point where uh, we may actually be doing ourselves a disservice at times by using taking CX to this easy frictionless extreme. Indeed, but I can see I can see why because that's it's, it's on the periphery. It's not it's not central, and it's something which they can control and, and design. I mean, how do you? That's what. Yeah, how do how do you go to actually become to become customer centric from having a CX department? I, I don't know. Can you? Strictly no. <laughs> a lot of people do it. A lot of people, uh, as you and I know uh, from hard experience, uh, the vast majority of companies may have a CX function, uh, but actually are not a customer-centric com company. They are not organized as a customer-centric well, company. Well, well, perhaps because it, uh, the, or the origin of that was, in, was either in design, user design experience, or customer service. Exactly. Exactly. But not exactly. customer centricity. Not customer centricity. So to be truly customer centric, uh, everybody in the organization really needs to be understanding the customer uh, and to be making it their business to think customer uh, every, every minute of every day. Uh, whereas that certainly isn't the case in a lot of companies. A lot of companies operate from a very different perspective. So uh, this is where there is enormous work to be done. I think equally, it, it's, it's not a case of, uh, as I think we've discussed on many occasions, of necessarily agonizing over what the customer always thinks. Right. Uh, because... We, we tend to, it's a bit, bit glib, I suppose, to go, keep going back to the Apple example and Steve Jobs. Uh, Steve Jobs was actually set up Apple as a very customer-centric organization, but he wasn't terribly in favor of going talking to customers. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, he, be, he believed that they didn't know what they wanted until he put it under their nose. And, there we are. Yeah, we can we can see that. Obviously, the day before the iPhone came out, uh, you, your um, your mobile phone, your standard Nokia or, or other other brands are available. Uh, phone would have been if you asked the customer, they would have been they would have given, I suppose, recommendations for for gradual improvement and not seen a revolutionary. Well, absolutely. Yeah, you're quite right. I mean, yes, they are Nokia. I mean, Nokia was was the big the number one, wasn't it? For, uh, uh, and it was way ahead, and Motorola, Razor, and things like that. Uh, and they were just zapped when uh, Apple came out with the, with the iPhone one or whatever it was. I mean, it, it was just um, it was just devastating to them. And you, I think we have to be careful about that example yeah. because that's not a practical proposition everywhere. Um, although it's perhaps worth mentioning uh, an important point, again, from the, the sort of Bible, according to Steve Jobs, if you like, 
uh, he said, when you're behind, leapfrog. So it was a particular thing of his, you know, the, you know, let's <laughs> go yeah, straight in, yeah. take it to go ahead. But, but that's not practical, obviously, in, in a lot of situations and in many, uh, many situations where you're dealing on, on, a, on a, a less dramatic way, shall we say, with customers and you're, you're providing a very good service, whatever it may be. Uh, but but you're not looking to uh, realign the world, if you like, in the way that he was able to. And, uh, so one one has to be careful about that. Uh, but it is a it is a very important point. Uh, cool. I've tried up there. I can't, I've forgotten. Well, he, 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 he did well, I I, I think. Okay, let's let's. That's another thing. I think one of the, the, the challenges is that you've got these people, you've got people saying, you know, if you don't become customer centric, the, you know, you, you face an existential crisis, you will, you, you will go under. And I think that the challenge w- would, would be, you know, how, how, how do you, you, how do you assess that to make sure that, it, to see that it's true? And how do you, and how do you, and then how do you go about a plan of change? Mm, that's the big one, isn't it? I mean, I, if you if you look at there, there is a lot of research uh, out there, readily readily ex- available and accessible, that certainly suggests that companies that have a good knowledge of their customers, that treat them well, uh, and if you like, are basically customer centric, uh, they fare better than the others. Uh, They fare better in terms of sales, they fare better in terms of profitability, and overall it's a winning winning strategy. So it makes makes sense to do that, uh, one would say. So uh, it it depends, how how then do you, first of all, you've got to get back a point where we started about what, what is specifically is customer centricity. Uh, and we talked about the fact that it, we talked earlier about the fact that uh, to a lot of people, customer centricity is a rather vague statement about putting the customer at the center of the business. Yeah. Making the customer the, the focus of everything you think and do. And that's one. We've also, uh, we often talk customer centricity, let's come back to that. We find, as we have also discussed, that uh, customer centricity gets sidelined into, is sidelined the right word? I don't know. But anyway, you know what I mean? It becomes a function of CX, customer Mm -hmm. experience, and the rest of them can all go hang and carry on just as they did in the past, and nobody will worry because CX is the 21st century update for customer service and all that goes with it and the way it's handled. Uh, there's uh, a, a lot of, um, in, in, from our researches, we find that a lot of customer centricity definitions also talk about um, covering all, all the, uh, the touch points Mm-hmm. Um, and they extend that. So they go a little bit beyond the CX department, but not very far. Then there's another variant of, of CX, 
which is clearly stated as being to do with the shift from the product era to the customer era. So uh, what you do now, the way to do this is to stop selling products and start creating customer relationships. Yeah, uh, and, and that that's where the future lies. And uh, there are people like Peter Fader uh, who, who promote that line. I'm always skeptical about that one because uh, I don't dispute it. In fact, what I do dispute is whether it's new. I think it's, it's an, a kind of updated version of 20th century market um, targeting. Uh, segmentation, target, I don't see it as being different to that. So uh, we've got these various things going on and we need to actually do something you know, within the company. Um, as I think we've, we've, we've argued thus far, customer centricity operating in isolation in a CX department, typically, Yeah is not true customer centricity. There does need to be, uh, the companies that are winning are those that do pay attention, more attention to their customers. And they do look more carefully at customer expectations. They look at data to analyze true customer needs and they try, they try and fathom that. Uh, and that's getting easier to do, of course, because we yeah. have more and more sources of data. Um, there is a, an argument uh, a brewing, I think, about the legitimacy and morality and ethics of um, scraping all the data that, that people have got uh, and using it without their express authority and permission. But um, so really, the, the thing about customer centricity Transformation requires, it's an inversion of the old thinking. In the old thinking, where one was selling products, a business strategy started with the company. The company set targets and objectives for, based on unit sales, particularly. Right. And the, pro, the profitability that could be generated from that. So what it did, it, set, it created its business plan. Uh, then it created an organization. And the organization almost invariably started with production because that's what it was all about. Oh, we've got to sell a lot of stuff, so let's make sure the production's right. And we've got a hugely efficient production function and so on and so forth. And the, only then did the next thing, next layer of, of strat strategic thinking was Who's the customer? Who are our target customers? It was all very militaristic. Uh, you know, we have a, a, a target customers and we had sales campaigns to go and bash yeah. the target customers into submission and into buying whatever it was we're selling. Now, if you're going to be truly customer centric, you've got to change that sequence. So the when you're doing the business strategy, you, it's still perfectly permissible to talk about, you know, what we're going to sell and, and, and what we hope to sell. But you've got to start thinking about the customer there. Start with put customer before organization. 
So because what is happening is moving the decision-making process further and further closer to the customer, away from the business and towards the customer. So there is a, there is a, this is a very different kind of business. <laughs> that sounds a bit scary, I think. This is oh, a, well, yeah. it, it is. It scares uh, the pants off a lot of C-suite uh, executives. We know this uh, because it, it feels to them as though they're losing control. This is not, I'm not in the same, oh, what do, how do I know <laughs> what's going to come of this? And that happens in two ways. One is you're going to have to listen to the customer. Uh, and second, you're going to have to empower your own employees more. Yes. Because they're, it, it's downline close to the, at the customer supplier interface that the real heavyweight discussions and decisions are going to be made. Uh, and you need to open up your organization as well because you need to enable the customers by various mechanisms and means. To talk to any part of the company. Well, that means they're going to be uh, become endogenous, aren't they? Um, yes. From the surface of the customer being a distant target outside and marketing and things pushing out, bringing them in means that they that they then sit at the centre and and have surface area or contact with other uh, functions of the business. Yes, they do indeed. They become, as you say, endogenous uh, resources and assets of of the organisation. Uh, so it's no longer sensible to think of them as the remote people that we go and shout at through our loud hailer, but we've got them in there. Now, that, that, that raises immediately the point of talking to them. Mm. What is the level of communication that goes, now, now we're up close and personal, and we, are, we want to talk to these people. Now, the, the thing that most organizations will think of and their imagination runs no further is than data scraping data or yeah. you know I, I can you know or I can work everything out from data yeah um, we we are are working on going beyond that mm-hmm. uh, and we are going to say hang on one thing that it seems obvious but it's difficult to do is actually to talk to them to enter into something of a different kind of relationship with these people. And we we have research that shows that a significant number of customers, typically 30%, which is quite a big chunk, at any point in time are prepared to get more involved in terms of helping and and collaborating almost, co-creating with the company. Uh, And okay, this is tricky. This is tricky stuff because, you know, you've got a lot of people to think about, you've got a lot of people to bring in, but it can be managed. And there is new research involving uh, behavioral dynamics, uh, cognitive research and what have you, uh, that brings this in and that we use uh, which is being labelled R intervention, R for relationship intervention, and uh, or relational, shall we say, relational interventions. This is a, a new area, but one that is already showing enormous benefits 
and, and has produced it, not least has produced a new metric uh, that has come out of, of years of research, the metric which has been labeled goodwill, uh, which very accurately, I do, you know, how, how, what is the level of goodwill? Customers with high goodwill towards an organization will actually get engaged and will get involved and will communicate freely, willingly, happily uh, on, on a day-to-day -day basis. And this is not pie in the sky. This is based on uh, uh, a almost, I think, eight, seven or eight year research project, which came out of uh, Penn State University, led by a very good uh, friend and uh, colleague of ours, uh, Dr. Olaf Hermans, and this, so this is, this is not sort of airy-fairy stuff. This is, this is hard, uh, hard thinking and hard practice. Mm -hmm.